Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Pettiprin. In each episode, we bring you in-depth conversations with Catholic authors, focusing on the most important cultural and ecclesiastical matters of our age. For the past 40 years, Ignatius Press has been the leader in Catholic publishing, with a wide variety of media, of authors and titles, old and new. We invite you to learn more about us and explore our extensive offerings at ignatius.com. If you like what we do here on the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and please consider giving us a five-star review. We pray that this podcast will inspire you as you grow in your faith. Now, on with the show. Throughout the West, we have arrived seemingly overnight in a new era where we are asked questions whose answers were once self-evident. What is a man? And what is a woman? Whatever the combination may be of pharmaceutical marketing, ideological capture, social contagion, exposure to toxins, or indeed the effects of spiritual warfare, more and more people in Western society are declaring their unease in the bodies in which they were born. Some men believe they are women. Some women, men. Some declare themselves non-binary or gender fluid. Activists are quick to affirm, cheerleading the doctors who administer dangerous, side-effect-riddled interventions under the euphemistic banner of transgender care. Anyone who objects or even questions is demonized as phobic. Meanwhile, great human tragedy multiplies, especially among our young. Some adolescents, on the cusp of or in the midst of their natural biological transitions from childhood to adulthood, declare their desire for a different kind of transition. It usually begins socially with a name change, pronoun swapping, and cross-dressing. Where legal, the next stage may be to take puberty blockers in the mistaken belief that normal development can be paused until a child figures out which direction he or she would like to go. Then come cross-sex hormones and, in the extreme, surgery. Increasingly, however, individual youths and adults who have sought transition in one or more of these ways have woken up to the reality that there is no end point to the transgender journey. They realize they will never arrive at becoming something they are not, and they see that no pharmaceuticals or surgeon's knife will heal their dysmorphia. And so, in an extraordinary act of courage, they de-transition, turning around and going back to the original path of their God-given sex. Sadly, the stories of the growing number of de-transitioners are usually repudiated by the transgender communities to which these people once belonged, and they are downplayed or simply ignored by the mainstream media. But with the voices of detransitioners growing louder and the prospect of major litigation looming against various players in the transgender industry, the tide may be beginning to turn. A new book from Ignatius Press, The Detransition Diaries, is one channel of hope. In this charitable, accessible volume, one not only learns about the origins of medical transgenderism, but also how we may think of its effects alongside other tragic movements and phenomena in medical history. Most importantly, one encounters in this book the heart-wrenching but ultimately hope-filled stories of seven detransitioners. Victims of a cruel system, yes, but also victors, ambassadors for reality. The Detransition Diaries is co-authored by Callie Fell and Jennifer Lal, the latter of whom is my guest today. 
Jennifer Lal is the founder and former president of the Center for Bioethics and Culture. She was a pediatric nurse for 25 years, and she has lately produced several films, including Transmission, What's the Rush to Reassign Gender, and The Detransition Diaries, to which this book is something of a companion. Her latest film is called The Lost Boys, Searching for Manhood. All of them are available for free online. It is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Lal to the Ignatius Press podcast today. And owing to the serious subject matter of this episode, parents should use discretion about listening with young children present. Jennifer Lal, welcome to the Ignatius Press podcast. How are you? I'm well, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well, and so much the better for having read the book that you have co-authored with Callie Fell, which is called The Detransition Diaries. It is a very informative and provocative, but not in a sort of unnecessarily controversial way. I've just really enjoyed reading what you, the way that you and your co-author approach this very important topic that all of us in society are now wrestling with this phenomenon of transgenderism. You, you say in the introduction to the Detransition Diaries, you say, we are nurses who happen to make movies, but now you also write books. So how did you and Callie come to write the, the Detransition Diaries? Well, I will put all credit or blame on the, um, the feet of <laughs> Vivian Doudreau at Ignatius Press, because we were actually in production on the film, The Detransition Diaries. Um, and Vivian approached us and said, would you write a book about this? Um, and I thought, well, wow, that was pretty cool because once you hadn't even seen the movie yet, and I was like, well, don't you want to see the movie? Maybe it's horrible. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, it was at, at Vivian's um, nudging. And so Callie and I, you know, we're both busy wives, mothers, um, and we have full-time jobs running the Center for Bioethics and Culture. You know, we said to Vivian, you know, let us think and pray about this. And and we'll get back to you. And of course, we got back to her and said, you know, clearly this is something that we are to do. Why else would this opportunity land in our lap? So here we are with, um, you know, the book just being released. I saw this over the weekend. It was no, trending number one on Amazon uh, in the new release category. And wow. No doubt. And no surprise. I mean, so many people, as I said at the outset, are really searching for answers to to these questions. And, you know, the, the book is, uh, it's not too long, it's very accessible, and um, it's both informative, but then also really um, reaches, uh, reaches out on a human level because you tell the stories of seven individuals who have detransitioned. And we'll get to them in a moment. But before we do, I, I wonder if you could set the stage for us a little bit more about um, about what the book is trying to do. You say, um, also in the introduction, you say, some transgender activists will not tolerate any suggestion that there are people who once considered them themselves trans who now regret having undergone procedures that did permanent damage to their body. And, you know, I read that and I thought, it really does seem to be the case that there is kind of this one this one narrative. Um, and yet, the, the human stories are much more complicated than that. And there are people out there who are... Um, you know, not not only detransitioners, but people who are just really wondering what what the truth is out there. So, I don't know. You know, from your background in in um, healthcare and and uh, and you're researching all these topics. Um, you know, what kind of opposition have you bumped up against as you've been as you've been trying to to get the stories out? Yeah, we've been actually very fortunate in that our documentary films, um, and we've made three now in the space of transgenderism. Um, have been overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, largely positively received. We haven't had our YouTube channel shut down. Um, we just released a, a new film three weeks ago, and two of the male stories we included in this book. Um, and that film is, you know, we've had 350,000 media views of that film. It, and in three weeks, it's already now in Spanish and Polish. And the YouTube comments are overwhelmingly positive with thumbs up and just a few stink bombs. And I think that's our style in writing and talking about this issue. We're not polemic. You know, again, we're nurses. We like the facts. You know, what does the science say? 
um, as nurses, we're really concerned with medical ethics. You know, what should doctors do or not do? Uh, so we've been really well received. Um, and what prompted the making of this movie, The Detransition Diaries, and then book, was we actually watched the 60-minute segment, which we talk about in the book, where it was a, a focus on transgender health, and 60 Minutes dared to include a small sliver of the segment included the voices of detransitioners. And we saw the backlash that not only the television network and Wesley Stahl, who was the interviewer of that program, you know, that was thrown at these, how dare you tell those people's stories? And that's when we thought, oh, then that's all the more reason why we have to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. And I went, I, I was, I, I had not seen that, um, that Leslie Stahl segment, but funnily enough, as I was wrapping up my reading of your book in preparing for our interview, there was an article in the New York times of all things that, I mean, it, it re, and that really felt to me, and maybe we can get into this a little bit later, but it, it does feel to me that there might be a little bit of a shift going on and your book seems to seems to take a take a place in that you know in this conversation that maybe is opening up a little bit now yeah and it's funny because you know at the end of the book we sort of close it out with you know how is this going to come to an end um and we you know we outline several different medical scandals over the course of some time largely in the united states um and we make the case that it's whistleblowers and it's lawsuits. And we've already seen, you know, the New York Times piece last week um, where we actually got, you know, a, a journalist who was willing to speak the truth. <clears throat> Not that she was a whistleblower per se, but she was actually able to crack through that, you know, fortress of thou shall not speak about this. Um, and then just the other day, another whistleblower has come forward. And I'm in California, I'm in the backyard of Ignatius Press in the Bay Area. We have three major lawsuits here in California against Kaiser Permanente filed by detransitioners. So we already are seeing these lawsuits and whistleblowers and an ability, willingness to be more honest, which we know will only pave the way for more people who've either been sitting on the sidelines, um, worried about getting canceled, worried about losing their, you know, their job, all those things why people don't speak up. Um, but I think it will embolden more and more people to say, you know, this this can't continue. Yeah, let's hope so. And and maybe to to get into the topic a little more. Um, even as we're now wondering if the conversation is widening, we're still, most of us are still just trying to make sense of the phenomenon of transgenderism as seemingly having come out of nowhere. Uh, but as you, as you lay out early in the book, it hasn't exactly come out of nowhere. I mean, the, the numbers have skyrocketed in just the last few years, uh, in, especially among younger women, which we'll get into. But um, there, is, there is a story to tell about kind of the transgenderism phenomenon. And in your book, you begin that story or, mo or more or less begin that story with someone called Einar Wegener. Um, could, you, could you kind of, you know, give us some of the highlights of the story, maybe beginning with that, with that figure, like where we, how do we get to where we are today? Yeah, I'm, Mr. Wagoner was was um, you know an, an artist. He was married to a woman who was an artist, and she you know asked him one day to sort of be the the subject, the model. You know, artists like have to paint somebody, and you know we'd put him in women's clothing, and sort of that set him off on feeling like, oh, I like I like this. I like presenting as a woman. Maybe I am a woman. And he went on, and you know. I can't remember the actual date, but he went on and had the first uterine transplant and eventually died of, of uterine transplant complications of that surgery. Uh, and, you know, so it was, you know, and I don't know that that's the really the beginning of the story, but that's where we pick it up in that sort of pivotal moment when we actually had the medical establishment saying, oh yeah, well, we'll turn you into a woman. We'll put a uterus in you. Um, and then, you know, there, we sort of, I highlight some other big actors along the way. Um, Harry Benjamin, who then was, he was a precursor of what we now live with, which is called WPATH, which is the ideological um, group of activists that sort of steer how medicine is gonna operate. And we look at John Money and Alfred Kinsey. Um, the, you know, then we sort of move into what was going on in academia with sort of blurring of language and gender queer and the whole, um, 
movement of that, you know, that there's no distinction between male and female. We just blur all those, you know, nonsensical things that we we believe in. You know, they're like, no, we don't, we're not men and women. We are fluid and we're gender queer and the whole, you know, the whole queer movement. Um, and, you know, and that sort of, you know, it crept into academia, it crept into medicine, it crept into popular culture, you know, whether you look at the Boy Georges and, the, you know, David Bowie's, you know, people that, you know, just dressed real bizarrely in um, flamboyant clothing and, and how medicine just got really captured. And we pin it to, you know, what happened in Nazi Germany. We pin it to what happened with Tuskegee and the lobotomy and the sterilization programs and and how did medicine go so terribly wrong and what got medicine back on track yeah I, I, I those two chapters the chapter the chapters of the book where you talk about kind of the the pedigree of transgenderism and then your chapter where you like and 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 you know others have done this before but I really appreciated the the care that you took with the you know pulling out these examples of kind of medical catastrophes or where where medicine has become captive to ideology uh, in the in in the um, the examples of, of uh, Nazi racial hygiene and Tuskegee and lobotomies and, and these kinds of things and um, you know from there then we're able to move from okay we, we've got some history we understand sort of the you know, with a kind of sadness, how it moved so quickly. And this is one of the points you make throughout the book that, I mean, in a sense, like transgender people, sadly, are like they're th themselves living experiments because there's no, it's not like anything that they're really going through is rooted in, you know, a tradition of, uh, of, tr of trial and error and, you know, and all these kinds of things. And so we just don't really know what's going on. But when it comes right down to it, I mean, you can, you know, you can present um, information to people and tell people a story uh, of the history of something. But then when it comes down to it, we're out here in society thinking, well, what about this person who's related to me? Or what about this friend of mine? Or what about these people that I've heard about? Um, and that's where your book really, the heart of your book really comes out in the stories of the, of the, of the detransitioners that, that you feature. And you feature seven people and um, I know that some of them are connected to your film and maybe some of them are not. So maybe, could you tell us like, how did you, how did these seven people come onto your radar? Well, when we went into production on the film, we were already watching social media to see who were the most outspoken, articulate, you know, passionate detransition voices. So, um, so whether we actually approach them to be um, in the film or we actually um, have a podcast, Callie Fell, the co-author of this book runs a podcast called Venus Rising. Um, so I've interviewed Chloe Cole, whose story is included in the book, but she's not in the film. And Callie interviewed um, Rachel, who's in this book in, on her podcast. So we already had relationship. We already were watching these people. Um, then you just have to approach them to ask their permission because not everybody wants to be in a film just because they're active on social media. Um, and, and there are people for various reasons that turn us down because, you know, anybody who's undergone some kind of serious traumatic event in their life, at one point they want to pick up the pieces and, and move on. They don't want to be always the detransition or, you know, so some people just clearly say, you know, I'm, I'm done doing media and I'm just going to go live my life now. And, and so that's how we came to pick them. You know, they had compelling stories. They're articulate. You know, some people have compelling stories, but it's really hard for them to articulate. Um, and it's, you know, in a way that makes an editor happy. Um, yeah. So there's that practical side of it. Uh, and, you know, it was, it was, again, back to Vivian. She knew we were in production and we were in Europe at the time. We were in England um, filming The Lost Boy, Searching for Manhood, which is the new film focus on male detransitioners. And she said, it would really make this book um, better and reach a larger audience if you could include two male voices. Um, and so we've looked at the five men that we were interviewing at the time in production um, and the two men that we decided to in include in this book. Um, we included for a, a few reasons. Once they had, you know, they had very compelling stories. Um, two, they're, um, they're American-based. And three, they both had a, 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 a reversion or a conversion to uh, faith. 
So there was a faith element in their stories as well, which we thought would really resonate with an Ignatius Press um, readership. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into the specific cases, but I appreciated that the 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 figures, the the, the people, the individuals that you focus on in the book, they they don't all they don't at all all have the same story or the same kind of motivations. You know, they're not all kind of rooted in a conversion to Christianity or anything like that. And I think in a sense that makes the 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 overall picture that the seven of them together present um, stronger. Um, did any of them? Yeah, just to follow up on that, did any of them fear or worry about maybe sort of being worry that maybe they would they would kind of be used as like a political figure in a culture war type situation? Uh, I didn't sense that at all. One is that we you know we're always very clear when we approach people to seek their permission to work with us, either in film or book format. You know, we we tell them who we are, we tell them our point of view. Basically, we say we're on your side. You know, we're, we're not going to punk you. We're not going to dunk on you. We're not going to use your, um, you know, your stories for any kind of gain. You know, we're just documentary filmmakers. We're nurses. <laughs> um, and we always you know, say you can see our past films. So you can see our style and how we approach things and just letting people tell their story. Um, so I think that builds a little bit of trust and that, you know, that, and we're obviously very prominent out there on social media and you know, it's not hard to figure out who we are and what our point of view is and what we stand for. So I think people feel like that they can trust us, which I hope they do. Um, and usually I, I, I don't think I can say, you know, almost a hundred percent, everybody who's been in a project that we've worked on has never regretted it. You know, they've been a, proud to be part of it and been really pleased with the end product. Um, and, you know, I have to give credit again to Ignatius Press. This is the first time I've ever written my own book. I've written lots of chapters in other people's books, but to do my own book. And I mean, Ignatius Press is an amazing um, group of people to work with. And the, the editors, I mean, as much as I want to take credit for every word that was written here, you know, editors make everything much shinier and prettier, uh, which we're so we're so grateful for. And they did, you know, they allowed us to include stories of people that are same sex attracted. Um, you know, which you have to walk a fine line when you're you're dealing with a publishing company that has one point of view, but you're including stories. Um, but that's the real world we live in. Um, and that's the real world we're called to operate and work in and do our various vocational callings in. Um, so we were really happy that they didn't say, well, you only have to conclude these kind of stories and not those kind of stories, which I think makes the book, again, a approachable for a broader readership because um, there's you know in these seven stories everybody who reads a book will see somebody in it you know whether it's a family member or a neighbor or you know they'll, they'll you know they'll have some kind of point of contact where they'll go oh I know somebody that is struggling with that or feels that way or yeah yeah well let's get into the let's get into the individuals because I think each one uh, maybe we can highlight the things maybe about each one that that stand out. Uh, and the first one is Helena. And one of the things that really struck me about Helena's story, story and this runs through the other ones too, but right right off the bat in this first one, um, there's a quote where um, where it says here that that uh, people tried to bend over backwards to help me be trans. That's what Helena says. That you know the first sign of confusion about her gender there were there were people who kind of pounced uh and and who grabbed onto that and and wouldn't let it go um so maybe you could say something about that about helena's experience and, and maybe other others as well yeah and, and that is a theme that you'll hear throughout this conversation on transition detransition um you know and helena was a classic um young 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 teenager who was just struggling with all kinds of things. You know, she had some depression, some mental health issues, you know, didn't fit in, you know, didn't really have a lot of robust, good, strong friendships, um, felt isolated at school and nobody, you know, teachers, counselors, nobody picked up on that. But the minute she came out as transgender, they all went, oh, Helena, you're so popular now. You know, um, you know, Helena learned that this was a way to get social credit. You know, she talks about being um, 
you know, she was white, you know, from a upper middle class family. And so she was the oppressor. You know, kids today, you know, they look at them and we, we talk about this in the male detransitioners too, you know, men are the oppressors, white people are the oppressors. So she learned that if she changed her pronouns or changed her name or identified as, you know, non-binary and gender fluid or trans, she, she got social credit. You know, she didn't have to apologize anymore and she had friends. Um, and so, you know, kids are smart in figuring out often, you know, how can I become popular? How can I have friends at the on the playground and not sit alone at lunchtime? Um, and, and that was really tragic for her because nobody seemed to care about her when she was struggling, when she was sad, when she felt alone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was that was particularly interesting in attaching the you know what we're what we're seeing as a culture with transgenderism to the the possibility of you know this being you know in a sense a kind of um you know just something kind of uh, a social pressure that that is exerted on some people but obviously that's not everyone's experience you know to, to others you know they they sort of um come out as transgender or experience or you know express that uh, in in different ways, and the second person you focus on, Grace, that one was kind of heartbreaking for me to read about because um, she, one of the things that came out in her story, which came out in some of the others as well, is is Grace was told as she was questioning, as she was doubting, that if she, you know, once she sort of put the piece on the board saying, "I think I'm transgender," then if she questioned it the response back to her was something along the lines of, well, you're just internalizing transphobia from other people. And so then it creates this sort of really strange loop in a person's head that, I, you know, it, it just seems so hard to get out of. Yeah. And, you know, Grace, um, you know, when she was, you know, a young girl and in college, you know, she identified heavily with sort of the social justice warrior crowd at school and, you know, very ideological and, you know, it's funny when you are in, in that kind of a um, milieu that it's very rigid. There's not a lot of tolerance for diversity. And, you know, it's like, you know, you, you have to be trans, you have to be trans. And if you're not, you're just a transphobe, you're part of the problem. Um, and so she was able to sort of, when she got herself out of, and I often say the cult, <laughs> which might get me in trouble, but it is, it's a cult. You know, you have only one way of believing and you have to follow the rules. Um, and, you know, when she started peeling herself out, I love how she sort of talks about taking slow steps back, you know, from being full trans to being, well, I'll just let people call me Grace again. I'll take my name back. You know, and then it was like, okay, I'll drop the pronouns. Okay. And then, and then you know, in, in the film, which is really powerful, you can't, that's the beauty of book and film. You know, we actually show pictures of her at her wedding with her husband um, and, you know, you know, bonus features for your listeners if you've made it this far. Grace has just had a baby. Oh, wow. That's she wonderful. She about worrying, you know, if she has harmed her fertility because she took testosterone. Mm -hmm. And of course, she laments because Grace is one of the women in, in the book that we talk about, the fact that she had a double mastectomy as part of her mm -hmm. trans um, journey. Um, so she's been quite um, open on social media about the fact that she can't nurse her baby. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's that's encouraging. Then that's that, and there there was there was a lot of encouragement actually in the stories of people, you know, taking their lives back and taking their identities back, and and really becoming more whole after having you know, uh, having made these uh, pretty drastic decisions about their bodies. Yeah, I, and it's clear that they don't, like I said earlier, they don't want to spend their life being identified as this thing that they did on mm -hmm. this moment in their point in history in their life. Um, and we, you know, in our film and in the book, we we have to give hope because there is hope, yeah. right? We have hope. Um, and you see it in these people that you think on one hand, they could just wallow in their tragedy and be bitter and angry and shake their fist at the doctors that did this and the therapists and the teachers. Um, but, um, you know, they have, um, I'm, I'm just, people always ask, always ask me, who did you like the best? Who was your favorite? I'm like, maybe that's the mother in me, the pediatric nurse in me. I love all of them, you yeah. know, and, and they do in their own, you know, individual unique ways, find a way to rise above this. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah, it really, that, that, that shines through in all the stories. Um, one of the two men that you focus on is a man called Nick, and his was unique, what was one of the unique stories that our listeners at Ignatius Press might find particularly interesting because he actually, part of his detransition was a reversion to Catholicism. Um, I don't know if you want to say something about Nick, about his story. Yeah, um, he, well, one thing, you know, that was interesting to me is that when Nick decided to announce that he was a woman and was going to be living his life as a woman, um, his father was very not happy about that. And his mother embraced it and thought it was wonderful and wanted to champion that her son was now her daughter. Um, so that immediately caused some you know, tension in the family, especially between the husband and the wife, um, clearly. But, you know, Nick, I, you know, these are my words. And maybe if Nick listens to this, he, he maybe would correct me. But, you know, he was perhaps what you would consider sort of a nominal Christian, a no, nominal Catholic. You know, wasn't I don't I don't get the sense that he was raised in a robust, strong Catholic faith family, um, but that was a very important element of him uh, waking up to his you know, delusion, confusion about who he was, was a reversion back to his um, faith, which, you know, he's now, um, you know, by his own admission, you know, embraced and regularly attending mass and finishing up graduate studies and wants to teach in a, you know, Catholic school educational setting. So that was, you know, very encouraging to hear that he, as part of his path forward, had come back to um, that little nascent faith in him. And, and, it, and it seems to be in a very meaningful way. Yeah, um, that's obviously very beneficial to him. And the same with Torin, the other gentleman in his in his story. Um, he's a Protestant um, uh, by tradition. And, um, you know, that was a big part of his sort of, you know, putting the pieces back together hmm. was making sense of a larger faith narrative in his in his understanding of who who he is and the larger meta narrative of the world. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's wonderful to hear. What about, um, maybe we can skip around a little bit. What about Chloe? Because the, the, the thing that struck me about her is, and you talked about this in several places in the book, is that there is there does seem to be a kind of statistical connection between autism and transgenderism. And that was the case in Chloe's story. Maybe you could say something about her. Yeah, um, we included Chloe, one, because she was probably one of the youngest uh, people that was put on a surgical path to transition with, you know, having a double mastectomy when she's still legally a minor, which is just abhorrent to me to think about. Um, but yeah, she struggled with, you know, being on the autistic spectrum. Um, you see a lot in these uh, young men and women comorbidities. They're, you know, OCD, autism, Asperger's, depression, um, so mental health kind of problems as well. Trauma uh, is often a big part. You know, Helena talks about as a really young girl losing a very significant caregiver in her life and how the family just wouldn't talk about it and how that really made her struggle with that loss of a, a you know, important person in her life. So you have all these, you know, like, and, and Chloe probably had several of them. And Chloe, as well as the young men, um, pornography played a big role. And the influence of the internet, you know, Chloe talks about as she was the youngest of, uh, I believe, five, five children. And so she was sort of the, you know, like on your own kind of kid. The older siblings were much older than her, off at school, gone all day. Her parents both worked. So she had access, she says, to pornography um, that she should never have ever had access to. And she also, um, because, you know, we all know that when you're online watching stuff, they're, the internet is watching you, so they serve you up more stuff that you're watching. So she couldn't open, she says, Instagram. She couldn't open Instagram without being sent, you know, transgender stuff. Um, so my, my you know, take takeaway to people is if you're raising young children right now, you know, you really need to monitor their social media and what they have access to. Get, get your kids outside connecting mm -hmm. to real, real people. You know, uh, Chloe, um, you know, just spent hours, hours online because she was home alone and had, you know, you know, nobody supervising her. Yeah. So 
which is, is quite tragic because so much of this could be unavoided if we recognize these other issues that are going on with the child. Like, why does my child who otherwise seem fine think they're the opposite sex now? Let's mm -hmm. look at what's going on at school. Are you being bullied at school? You know, what, you know, are you depressed? Are you sad about anything? Um, you know, what have you been doing on your computer? Can I look at what you're <laughs> looking at? Um, and look at those things versus saying, oh, you must be born in the wrong body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The two other, uh, the two other individuals that you, you, um, you feature are Kat and Rachel, and I'll just, I'll just name them. So we've named everybody, but maybe we could transition with them to, to, um, the, the topic of why is this happening to women, to young women, the way that it is like, what is going on? That's, that's something that you focus on a little bit in the book that, you know, there seems to be just this, this way out of proportion, um, situation where young young women are um, ill at ease now in their identity in their bodies as women and are seeking transition and identifying as transgender what what's going on there yeah and i think if we wrote the book now we'd have to give a little nod because it does seem to be trending up in young boys too about 30 percent of young boys now but uniquely to young girls as young girls more so than boys are very, they're very social creatures and they run in packs. You know, you know, your, your daughter, your sister, you know, she'll have her, you know, five or six, you know, best friends and they all, they all like little packs and they run around, they go here, they go to the mall together, they go to each other's houses. So they're very influenced by what their friends are doing. And if Debbie's doing something and Susie's doing it, well, then I should do it too. So they're really, um, you know, that more social creatures. Girls tend to be not 100%, but more concerned with appearances. You know, why do we see more girls um, with anorexia and bulimia? Not to say boys don't have that, but it's predominantly girls. Why do girls have more cutting, um, you know, self-harm versus boys? You know, so girls are more prone to those kinds of things when they have some kind of internal mental health strife, struggle, you know, to those, those kind of um, issues. And then, um, you know, it takes them longer to get out of it. You know, like, you know, Grace was a great example. When she started doubting, and maybe this isn't for me, the pressure that she, she put onto it. And when you look at um, one of the young boys that we interviewed for Lost Boys, he said, boys get into transgender ideology fast, but they get out of it fast. And I think when you think of boys or men, I mean, I'm married to a man, I have a son, you know, men are problem solvers. You know, I don't feel good. I don't feel comfortable with my body. What do I do? They go to the internet. Oh, you're born. Oh, okay. I'm going to transgender. And then they also, then they do it and they go, well, that didn't help. So they get, get back out of it because they're more kind of analytical problem solving kind of creatures versus girls social. My friends are doing this. Everybody's dressing this way. Everybody's wearing their makeup or hair this way i'm going to be like the pack mm -hmm. yeah i yeah i thought i thought it was illuminating what you what you know what you put in the book about that particular uh, aspect of of the transgender uh, situation and uh, you know our readers will will uh, be able to explore more for themselves uh, the next thing though is the question of the long-term damage that that occurs from uh, women and men who transition and then and then detransition and you know maybe we could start with the question of puberty blockers because I know that in in the culture in the media there is this narrative which says hey look for a kid who's confused let's just let's just press the pause button let's just you know let's just press the pause button and let's see let's see where this goes and you um you know you lay it out pretty clearly in the book that that's that's not really possible you know that you know so maybe you could say more about the the long term effects of puberty blockers and what's that what that's about well um and we rely heavily on footage from our very first film that we filmed called transmission what's the rush to reassign gender and in the detransition diaries book we interview dr quentin um, van meter a very strong man of faith, Catholic faith, who's a pediatric endocrinologist down in the Atlanta, Georgia area. We interviewed Dr. Paul Ruse, who, again, a very strong Catholic um, MD, PhD at Washington University, who's pediatric endocrinology. So these are the experts that know, you know, puberty and what happens in the brain and the body during puberty. And this notion that you can just stop a very important 
step in human development and that it would have no no negative consequences. It's just scientifically, biologically inaccurate. There are very important things that are happening when you move from infant to toddler to pre-adolescence to adolescence and adulthood and old age. You know, it's a, it's a, a very orchestrated by design human development. And, and we know that overwhelmingly once children are started on the medicalization track, they do move on to taking the cross-sex hormones once they block their puberty. They do move on to surgical interventions. It's sort of, um, you know, we, we talk about Michelle Forcier in the book, who was in Matt Walsh's film, What is a Woman? She was the chicken lady. Everybody refers to her now as the chicken lady. Well, she was in our film, you know, before What is a Woman comes out. And she talks about your child is on this gender journey and it just gives them time and you can pump the brakes and you can, and, and that's just not true. Um, that's, um, you know, it's just ignoring human biological development. And now, um, you know, my colleagues and I have um, written a manuscript that we are trying to get published in a medical journal. These children are offered fertility preservation, which we talk about in the book. So before you block a puberty on a boy or a girl, they're offered to freeze and bank their sperm or eggs because we know it's going to have a negative impact on their fertility. Mm -hmm. Why else would we offer to preserve their gametes, egg and sperm, if it doesn't negatively harm their ability to, you know, later go on and have a child? You know, the same with children that are already through puberty, because some kids don't have their puberty blocked. You know, maybe they're 11 or 12. They've already started or, you know, through puberty, um, decide that they want to transition. Um, you know, then they're offered, you know, the same fertility preservation. Um, but yeah, these are just important things that are happening at the human biological development. And these are important stages, you know, not just only in, in your, your fertility, your fertile bodies, you know, because puberty is making you into a fertile human being that can then go on and have children, but, you know, your brain. Is, mm -hmm. is developing during puberty into one, you know, bone structure, boys get deeper voices, boys get an Adam's apple, boys and girls start developing hair on different parts of their bodies based on being a boy or a girl, you know, so it's not just, you know, this little, oh, we can pause it and nothing will be harmed at all. Mm -hmm. um, and you never see somebody going through puberty at 27 because you unblock their puberty. And you go, okay, now you can go, no, you're 27 now. You missed the puberty. Right. Your, your development. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And um, the next step, you know, whether a, a person has taken puberty blockers uh, or not, uh, would be would be those cross the, the cross hormone drugs. And those also and again, you know, you, you say this many times in the book, but I mean, I, there again, you know, we're, the ship is or the ship is being built as it's flying to some degree. I mean, we're just now sort of figuring out what these long-term effects are going to be on the people who take them, but there clearly, there clearly are some. And, you know, I was, one of the heartbreaking things was the, I think in a few cases with the stories uh, that you told were um, women who take uh, testosterone, they, they don't get their female voices back or, or sometimes not. Anyway, there are certain things that kind of can't be undone. Is that, is that right? Yes. Um, so when, with women, their voice, it's very hard to get their, their natural natal, the voice that they were born with, the voice that God gave them back. Um, and, you know, sometimes, because I, I attend a lot of conferences where there's detransitioners and, you know, experts and all that, you know, and you'll turn around because you'll think you hear a man talking and you'll turn around and like, oh, it's a woman, but it's, you know, they still have that. Uh, you know, women have hair loss, you know, mm -hmm. because they become like men and that doesn't come back. So you'll see a lot of detransition women who still talk about the devastation of the fact that they have lost hair, they've got male pattern baldness. Um, and, you know, you can't, you know, as men and women, you know, men have estrogen in their bodies, women have testosterone, but it's at very different levels, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you take a male body or a female body and you put them on the dose of estrogen or hormone, so a man, say a man, you put him on the estrogen dose of a woman, that's estrogen at a level that a male body is not able to handle. And the same goes, you know, the, the reverse with a woman who's taking high dose testosterone. Um, and you hear about, you know, um, bone, bone loss and, and heart disease and, you know, things that, you know, shouldn't be occurring, in, especially in young people, you know, people in their 30s. 
And for the people that go on to do surgical, um, I don't want to call intervention, um, but, you know, like, you know, back to Grace. I mean, she had a double mastectomy and a double mastectomy. Again, this is kind of trying to be um, in polite terms. When they do a double mastectomy for transgender surgery, it's not like a woman who has uh, a mastectomy for cancer because they actually shave, and Chloe talks about this, they shave the bone down because they're trying to masculinize the chest. Mm -hmm. So it's not just removing the breast, but it's actually changing the shape of the bone. Um, and so all of the milk, milk duct glands are gone. So mm -hmm. even if they you know, wanted to try to produce milk, that this is not possible. Um, and part of Chloe's waking up was, um, she was in a, a class in high school and they were doing, they were talking about the study where they put the monkeys in the cage and one gets a monkey that's covered with like, you know, a soft little blanket and one's like a monkey that's just wire. And naturally the monkeys gravitated to the soft little fake monkey because it was more maternal, more, you know, like a mother. Um, and it was at that moment that she realized, oh my gosh, I'll never be able to mm -hmm. breastfeed, you know, breastfeed my children if I ever have them. So yeah. Yeah, this the the long the short and the long term complications to their actual health and just their physical appearance. Yeah, um, is, you know, um, you know, Nick talked about almost going forward to have the surgery to shave down his Adam's apple, because you know even though he he presented as a woman with long hair and wearing dresses, you know you would just look and you know see. Uh, you had to shave all the time mm -hmm. um, and just the, the physical presence of uh, Adam's apple. Yeah. Well, and well, that, that's a good, a good segue to just talking for a moment about the, you know, the surgical, the surgical stuff, you know, the, those who do decide to have top surgery, bottom surgery, and you go into all the details about what these are and what these entail. I mean, they're really signing up to a lifetime of, of surgery, a lifetime. Of, I mean, in order to be the person that they believe, in order to kind of, you know, they 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 believe they're in the wrong body, and in order to have the right body, it requires, you know, what some of us might consider a pretty unnatural intervention forever, um, and and oftentimes with really serious side effects as well that 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 persists until until they're gone. Yeah, and they're really in a double bind because you know two. And again, we 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 state very clearly up front in the book that we don't buy into the language. So when when I say transition and transgender, I mean I don't believe you could ever transition. So make that clear. But we talk about you know the the life the lifelong patience the tr person who's deciding to transition lives. You know if you decide to be a man that's going to present as a woman, you will have to do all these interventions for the rest of your life as long as you're pretending to be what you're not. The same is true for those that detransition. You know they are lifelong patients because they're dealing with the health consequences of damaging their their body by doing a certain thing. So say you're a, a, a woman and you want to go off testosterone or a man wants to go off estrogen, you know, you're going to have problems and things that you're going to be dealing with physically from, you know, going down that path and then reversing. So, you know, there's no win for these people. Um, and then of course the surgical interventions that there's no coming back from that. Um, and that's really, you know, what gets me, um, you know, just really undone when I think of, you know, doctors, why are they doing this? And, and we, we call out the wonderful people crying out in the wilderness in the book, you know, the Dr. Paul Bruises and the Quentin Van Meters, and, you know, because there are many people that are trying to get the medical doctors to stop doing this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you you highlight the the, the basics of, of healthcare, right? The Hippocratic Oath: Do no harm. And and are is any of this so called care measuring up to that standard? And your book really, to my mind, makes it clear it does not. That that actual a lot of harm is being done. And that's what gets back to one of your first questions: is writing the book when Vivian asked us, um, because there's so much we wanted to say that you can't say in the documentary film. And because we are nurses, you know, we wanted to really look at this through the strong lens of medical ethics. 
and what is the, the proper role of physicians to their distressed patients that's in front of them. Um, so it was great to have that ability to sort of look back historically and then hopefully point forward in a hopeful way of how do we, you know, get out of this and how do we um, make sure that, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes think when I'm just doing interviews like we're doing here today, Andrew, you know, how many children right now are undergoing surgical interventions on their body? How many children right now are being handed prescriptions for medications that are harmful to them? And it just grieves my heart to think that it's still happening. So how can we quickly work to stop it from happening? Yeah. Well, and maybe I know the answer to this. Maybe the answer is to make movies and write books and, and that sort of thing. That seems to be what you're what you're doing. But the, the title of your last chapter is How Does This Dark Chapter in Medical History End? And maybe just very briefly, how does it end? Well, it will end with um, the whistleblowers, the lawsuits, public awareness. I mean, we, we look at um, we talk about what's going on in other countries and. Um, so, you know, countries that have said, oh, we used to think this was the way we're going to treat people. And now we're not doing that. There's quite a few countries that have changed their practice. You know, we look at the states, um, you know, in the United States, it's become a state by state battle um, because, you know, when President Biden you know, walked into the White House on day one as the new president, you know, he introduced the Equality Act, which sort of paved the way for all this gender um nonsense to the point where California, my state, is now a sanctuary state. So kids that are in Texas or Florida where this isn't allowed, you know, they can't have their puberty block, can come to California. So we look at the legislative acts um, and we we call out Florida because Florida is sort of my uh, gold standard. Um, Florida decided not to act legislatively to stop doing this to children. Um, and my position was we shouldn't do this to adults either. But in Florida, um, they decided not to act legislatively, but the medical professionals, medical professional societies said, this is not how medicine is going to be practiced in the state of Florida, which mm -hmm. to me is the is the win-win solution because legislation is good, but then you know you have new members of Congress that you know get elected and they undo legislation. So you're constantly in this sort of you know, now we have a good law, but now we have people that are trying to undo that law. But when you can get the medical societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics, American Academy of, um, you know, surgery, the Pediatric Endocrine Society, when the medical professional societies and the doctors say, this is not how we're going to practice medicine. That's to me, the, the win goal. So Florida, to me, um, we call out because it's sort of the, like I said, it's my gold standard for how we should act. Well, we're just we're just scratching the surface. And the book is The Detransition Diaries. It's a must read, brand new from Ignatius Press, wherever you get your books. Jennifer Lal, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Andrew. This episode has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. Please visit us at Ignatius.com. Follow us on social media and be sure to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrew Pettiprin. God bless.